Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode is going to be another question and answer episode. A few weeks ago, I invited people subscribed to the Better Health While Aging email list to send me questions for the podcast. In episode nine, I addressed the questions about helping an older parent. And today, I'm going to address a handful of other questions that came in that were about health and aging. Now, before I go into the questions, please note that my suggestions in response to these questions are meant to provide information and education only. The goal here is to use your real-life questions to provide helpful information on how you might approach certain late-life health problems and where you can go to find more information. So now, let's get to your questions. Question. How many opinions should I be getting from different doctors for a serious health condition? I usually get three. Is this right or wrong? I am 75 years old. So what I really like about this question is that this person is being proactive and is um, seeking second opinions and even third opinions, it sounds like, when it comes to serious health conditions. Now, I think second opinions are often a good idea. They're not necessarily always necessary, but often helpful. But before we go into when to get an additional opinion and how many to get, let's first talk about the underlying goal. Your goal as a patient or as a family caregiver, if you're helping older parents, should be to make sure you're getting optimal medical care for a given concern or condition. And it's important to know that older adults are often affected by two types of suboptimal care. One is that it's fairly common for a health problem to be incorrectly diagnosed or not properly evaluated. So for instance, let's say that you've been feeling weak and tired and you go to the doctor and they check your blood count, uh, which they generally should do if you've been feeling weak, and they find that your red blood cell count is low, so they diagnose you with anemia. So you may have anemia, but it may or may not be the main cause of your weakness and fatigue. So it's important for doctors to not jump to a conclusion right away and do an adequate investigation. And then furthermore, anemia, which again means a low red blood cell count, is one of those health problems that can actually have several different causes for the anemia. And people sometimes assume that all anemia is due to low iron and hence can be treated with iron supplements, but that's not necessarily true. There are other causes of anemia that are not related to low iron. So for instance, having chronic kidney disease can can cause anemia. And even if it does seem that one has low iron, especially in an older adult, the next step should be to determine why does this person have low iron? And in particular, in older adults, we may find that they're having a slow bleed somewhere in their stomach or in their bowel. 
So in my years practicing, I've often looked over the charts of other clinicians, and I do find that sometimes the evaluation has uh, been cursory, or I feel like they jump to conclusions a little bit preliminarily. And this is a problem because the best treatment and management comes from doing a good job of understanding what is the underlying problem or problems, since in older adults, it's fairly common for there to be multiple things causing a given symptom or even abnormality on the blood work. So getting a second opinion is one way to try to improve the chances that you've had a thorough evaluation that has correctly identified what's going on with your health. The second problem that older adults often experience is that doctors don't always provide optimal recommendations for a given disease or a health problem. Now, what do I mean by optimal? Optimal means that the suggested treatment is in line with the most recent, best available medical knowledge, and that it's in line with the patient's preferences and values. So to provide this, a doctor has to know, or more realistically, be willing and able to quickly look up current best practices for a given diagnosis or health problem. And then often what we find is that there are several different ways that one can proceed. So for instance, for mild to moderate depression, you can treat with medications as first line that's in the latest recommendations, but the research also shows that certain types of psychotherapy are as effective. Or you can even combine the two, which might even be a little bit more effective. So in an ideal world, you as a patient would be informed by your doctor that for this condition, there are these different options that could be used for treating, and the decision on which one to pursue would be made based on your preference as a patient. So maybe you prefer to try non-drug treatments first. And so for mild depression, you would prefer to start with therapy, um, or maybe not. But in the real world, what usually happens is that doctors pursue the course of treatment that is most familiar or most convenient for them. And so it's sort of doctor-centered practice instead of patient-centered practice. And then furthermore, uh, we also know that it's not uncommon for doctors to recommend a treatment that's not in line with the latest best practices, and that's partly because it's hard for doctors to keep up with all the latest medical knowledge, and also doctors are people, and people are creatures of habit. So what all this means is that although I believe that most doctors truly are well-intentioned and want to help you, if you want to make sure you're getting the right medical care, it's definitely worthwhile to be proactive and to first of all make sure you've gotten a suitable evaluation diagnosis and then to make sure that you've been offered treatments in line with best available knowledge on what's safe and effective and that you've had a chance to weigh in if there are a few different approaches that could be pursued and in that case that choice should be made based on your preferences because you're the patient and the one who has to to live with the risks and with whatever's involved in the treatment so Given all this, does this mean you should get an extra professional opinion, and how many should you get? So I would say that's hard to say exactly. Although an, another opinion does give you another view on the diagnosis and treatment options, it doesn't necessarily ensure that you're getting optimal advice. So rather than suggest how many uh, second and third opinions you should get, I would instead encourage everyone to be thinking about how can you make sure you've had this good evaluation and been offered the optimal treatments. And the main way to do this is actually to learn to research on your own the problem and the treatment options. And so the main way to do this, I believe, is kind of threefold. One is you learn to do at least a little bit of research on your own about the problem and treatment options, often by accessing medical information online or possibly at a medical library near you. 
You should also get in the habit of asking doctors for a little bit more details on how they reached their conclusions uh, in terms of your diagnosis. Uh, and then when you're offered a treatment, you can get in the habit of asking if there are any more treatment options that could be considered or that have been shown to be effective. And especially if you're interested in non-drug treatments, you can ask specifically for that. So let me now share a little story that illustrates this in action. A few years ago, a member of my own extended family contacted me and told me that her daughter, who was about my own age, had recently been diagnosed with osteopenia. So that means thinner than expected bones. And that's unusual for a young woman. And they asked me what I thought of the doctor suggesting that this younger woman start taking a drug called alendronate. It's also called Fosamax. And it's often prescribed uh, usually for older women who have diagnosed osteoporosis. Now, although I'm an internist, my own doctoring experience has been almost exclusively with older adults for quite some time. And so although I'm familiar with osteoporosis in older people, I really didn't know what to suggest to a younger woman with this diagnosis. But I do have a resource that I turn to every day. And although it's designed for practicing clinicians, anyone can buy a subscription and access it online. It's called uptodate.com. It's very widely used by doctors and every place I've ever worked, including UCSF and the VA hospital has had an institutional subscription. And UpToDate was designed to provide practical evidence-based summaries on how to evaluate and treat medical problems. And they originally designed it so that it got updated a little bit more often than medical textbooks, which were just, you know, updated every several years. And UpToDate has uh, basically topic pages on a whole variety of different um, clinical medicine topics. They're evidence-based, meaning that the authors frequently cite um, the relevant medical literature, especially recent literature, and they include an extensive list of references for every topic. And the authors will also cite expert guidelines and uh, consensus committees as relevant. So whenever there's a medical question that I'm not sure of, I go to UpToDate. And so in this case, I looked up osteoporosis in UpToDate. And sure enough, there is a topic page specifically for osteoporosis in premenopausal women. And this page described the criteria for diagnosing this problem and also explained how you're supposed to check for underlying causes of osteoporosis in younger women because often the low bone density is being caused by another medical problem. And then the topic page explained treatment options. And of note, this article noted that there is not really any good clinical research supporting the use of bisphosphonate drugs, such as Fosamax, in women with premenopausal osteoporosis. They didn't even comment on treating premenopausal women with osteopenia, but that's already been questioned in postmenopausal women with osteopenia. So it seemed to me in looking over this that if her doctor was recommending she take Fosamax for this young premenopausal woman with osteopenia, it might be worthwhile to ask a few additional questions. So I ended up printing out the topic and passing it on to this person in my family who, uh, who was actually a nurse. So she had a bit of a health professions background, which is helpful because these topics are written in fairly technical language. They're designed for professionals. And, and she was not aware of the doctor having done any of these tests for any underlying problem that could have caused thin bones in her daughter. So they were really glad to learn of these um, kind of best recommended approaches for the problem. And they were able to go back to the doctor and ask additional questions. And ultimately, after further considering it, they decided with their doctor to not um, treat the thin bones with uh, that medication. So that's an example of how doing your own research can equip you to get better care for yourself or for a family member. 
And if they had gotten a second opinion, they may or may not have gotten the information that they got from consulting a high quality clinical resource. Now, I wanna emphasize that the goal in doing your own research is not to doctor yourself. It's to equip yourself to double check on what's happening because nobody has as much of a stake in making sure that things are done well as you the patient or you the family caregiver. And it's also to equip you to bring up, you know, thoughtful, good questions to the doctor. So if you do this type of research and discuss it with your first doctor, you may not feel that you need a second opinion. But if the medical situation seems tricky or seems high stakes, or uh, I'm sorry to say this, but some doctors are also um, a bit defensive and resistant when people come in having done some research and asking extra questions, then it can certainly be worthwhile to do some research and get a second opinion. So in terms of learning how to research your condition, I'll post some links in the show notes on learning more about this. Um, UpToDate is very good, but again, it's written for a medically trained audience. It can be, I think, a lot of work for a lay person to wade through all that, and it also costs $45 a month or $20 for the week. So um, you should also look into some other options, and I'll list some resources that can walk you through those. Uh, Some people find that it helps also to connect online with a community of patients with the same condition, and that can be another good option to consider. So in short, I think getting a second opinion is fine, and if you still have questions or concerns after that, then I guess you could also pursue a third opinion. But regardless of how many opinions you get, I would encourage you to do some research on your own. And especially if you bring in a really high-quality clinical resource like an up-to-date chapter or a recent summary of what's known about evaluating and managing a given health condition, if you bring that in and ask the doctor to help you understand how your own evaluation and treatment have corresponded to that, and if they're suggesting something different, just ask them to explain a little bit more why, you'll have done a lot more to optimize your health and your healthcare than if you go for a third opinion. And plus, you'll have learned a lot too, and that's really important. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Question. What makes legs feel that they are out of balance and prone to fall? Is there a remedy? So concerns about balance and legs and falling are pretty common. And there are a number of underlying problems that can cause this feeling in an older adult. And it's also fairly common if we evaluate um, an older person who's complaining of balance problems or feeling like their legs aren't working right. Sometimes we find a single thing that's driving it, but it's also fairly common for us to find a number of things that are kind of contributing together to that feeling. So I can't say what is the cause for the person who's asking the question, but let's talk about some common causes in older adults who raise this concern. And I'm going to start by just briefly reviewing what it takes to feel on balance with your legs and steady. There are actually several parts of the body that are involved. You have nerves that go from your feet and legs to your brain and back again, and they're involved in sending your brain information regarding the position of your joints and of your body. And then the brain processes that information and sends signals back to your muscles to help them act and keep you upright. So if there's been any damage to the nerves or the brain, then the whole process works less well. And then the muscles in your legs and feet also have to be strong enough to do the work. But as we heard from the physical therapy professor, Tiffany Schubert, in episode five, which was about the Otago exercise program for fall prevention, It's quite common for older adults to have low strength unless they're doing exercises to maintain strength. So that's another potential contributor to feeling like the legs aren't working well or to a fear of falling. And then, although much of the brain's processing and coordinating takes place in the back of the brain, in a part called the cerebellum, you also have a balance system embedded in the inner ear, 
and that's called the vestibular system, and if that's not working properly for some reason, then balance can feel very off. Although in that case, people usually complain of what's called vertigo, which is that um, feeling of uh, the room spinning or sometimes the floor tilting. And then you also have nerves that are supposed to tighten the blood vessels in your legs when you stand. And that's another process that often works less well as people age. So it's fairly common for older adults to have their blood pressure drop a bit when they stand, especially if they're on certain types of medications, such as blood pressure medication. And that too can leave people feeling like they might fall, although usually what I found is that people tend to say they feel um, lightheaded and unsteady rather than feeling like their legs specifically don't work or off balance. So to get back to the question of what causes legs to feel unbalanced and prone to fall, all of those things that I mentioned are possible contributors. And again, it's quite possible for older adults to have several issues going on, uh, either due to age-related wear and tear on the body's uh, nerves and muscles and sometimes brain systems, or sometimes it's due to a chronic condition, which may have damaged one of the many systems involved in, in staying upright. And then sometimes it can be either a short-term side effect or long-term side effect of certain medications. And so what's the remedy? The remedy is basically twofold. One is, uh, again, to start with a good evaluation for the underlying causes affecting the person. And so this basically means looking for fall risk factors. I've written about this for the site in the past and also done a podcast episode on it. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. And then the other thing to do is that if the concern seems to be about the legs and balance, then it's especially useful to get a physical therapy evaluation to assess uh, gait, which means the way people walk, and then leg strength and balance. As we heard in episode five, which was about the Otago Physical Therapy Program for fall prevention, in most older adults who have low leg strength or balance issues, a focused program of exercises can definitely improve those factors and reduce falls in those people who are at risk. So that's worth uh, considering. Next question. How do you deal with declining abilities, dementia, and physical dependency when you don't have any family members who can be caregivers or enough money to hire someone? So this is another common question, and wow, it is a tough situation. Basically, unless the older person is eligible for Medicaid, which is the state-based program that provides health services for low-income people, in this situation, people deal with difficulty until they have spent down or otherwise become eligible for Medicaid. So if you're trying to figure out how to help someone in this situation, here are a couple ideas of where you can look to get help. A good place to start is by calling your area agency on aging because they can help direct you to local resources. And they might even be able to um, point you towards a social worker or another professional that can help you assess whether the older person is eligible for Medicaid or for other uh, supportive services in the area. If the older person has Medicaid, then you'll want help accessing any caregiving or long-term care resources that are available in your area. Another helpful source of information that I would recommend checking out is the Family Caregiver Alliance Care Navigator online. Family Caregiver Alliance is a well-known nonprofit that focuses on caregiving, and on their website, and I'll link to it in the show notes, they have this navigator that allows you to click on the state where you are and then it offers a list of all kinds of programs and services that are available to help with caregiving. And although many of these services are for people who are on Medicaid, some of them are sliding scale. 
Another thing that I would recommend trying is using Google to identify local nonprofits that help older adults, especially in major metropolitan areas. There are often nonprofits, some of them are faith-based, that provide various services um, to older people or to their families. You can also try, especially if the older person has been part of a church or another community, you can try finding out if that community offers any kind of volunteer services to um, members uh, of their community. And I've had a few older patients who have been in part supported by volunteers from their church or other organization coming by to offer some services. You can also try local senior centers and caregiver support groups and sort of ask other people what they found is helpful for that situation. You can inquire at the older person's medical clinic or medical uh, doctor to find out if there's a social worker. Small uh, independent practices usually don't have a social worker, but larger medical groups may have a social work service that uh, the older person can be referred to. And that can, again, help look into different options for supporting the person. And then what's really important to do if you're concerned about declining abilities and dementia and physical dependency is make sure that you are equipped and prepared to intervene further. So for instance, somebody whose abilities are declining is going to need other people to start helping manage their finances, their affairs, and their health at some point. So you want to find out, have they completed power of attorney documents for healthcare, for finances, for general affairs? Can you assist in reducing their financial vulnerability? Because many older people who are declining are financially vulnerable, and it's unfortunately not uncommon for neighbors or other people who are helping them out to also help themselves to some of their cash. We hear stories like that quite often. You want to consider, and again, here it depends on your relationship to the older person and what you have permission to do, but you want to consider the possibility of safety monitoring in the home. We talked in a previous episode about those personal emergency response systems. I don't recommend those pendants for people with dementia who live alone because they almost never wear them. And if they are wearing them and they fall, they don't press the button. But there are some other sensor systems. And I'm hoping to have Richard Caro come back on the podcast to talk to us about them. But there are some motion sensor systems and other things that can be put in the home so they don't require the person with dementia to do anything. You want to make sure you have kind of the ethical and legal right to do that before you do that. But that's another thing that you want to be thinking about is how, um, what's the plan for finding out if the older person falls or gets hurt at home? How, how will help be recruited? And then last but definitely not least, I would highly encourage you to alert the older person's doctor of your concerns. You do not have to have HIPAA authorization to contact somebody's doctor and say, this is the situation, this is what I've observed, and this is what I'm concerned about. Um, the doctor may not be able to tell you what are the underlying medical problems or what they're going to do if you don't have authorization to access the person's, the older person's personal health information, but you can always bring up your concerns, and I would encourage you to do that. And you especially want to do that because sometimes some of the decline in abilities that you've noticed might be reversible or treatable. Or it could also be the sign of an underlying illness that needs to be addressed. So you want to bring that up to the doctor. And you can also, when you bring up your concerns, ask if the medications can be simplified. There are so many older people with dementia who are still being prescribed fairly complicated uh, medication regimens, and they really should be simplified. And sometimes it's that the doctor 
doesn't realize that the person has cognitively declined. A lot of doctors see older people fairly quickly and briefly and just may not notice. Um, or even if they think the person has cognitively declined, they may not think to simplify the medications as much as possible unless you ask them. So that's another thing that you can do to try to help the situation. For more on the planning and paperwork that helps equip older adults so that other people can step in and help when it's necessary, I recently published part six of the Healthy Aging Checklist about advanced planning to address medical, financial, and legal issues, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So again, a really tough situation, and hopefully some of those ideas will help. Next question. At age 88 and three impotent years, I was wondering if there's some way to recapture sexual activity. So impotence is fairly common in aging and often a very frustrating problem. Whether there's a way to recapture sexual activity depends in large part on what type of problem this man is experiencing and what's already been investigated and tried and, and especially on what is the underlying cause or causes of the sexual dysfunctions that he's experiencing. So in men, we usually classify sexual difficulties into one of three categories. There's problems with libido, there's problems with the erection, and there's problems ejaculating. Erectile dysfunction is probably the most common issue, and um, experts believe that up to 25% of it may be due to medications, but it also can be due to cardiovascular disease, which can damage the uh, blood vessels bringing blood to the penis, and then sometimes it's also due to neurological disease or neurodegenerative disease, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which sort of change the way the brain uh, signals to the nerves or the way the nerves are, are carrying signals, and so that can affect an erection as well. Sexual difficulties can also be related to problems with um, body hormones. Low testosterone is sometimes implicated. Thyroid problems uh, can be involved, and then there are other hormonal issues that are a little bit less common. For men who have had a prostate surgery, that often results in a certain amount of sexual dysfunction. So again, in terms of recovering the activity, the best is, uh, as I mentioned in answering the first question, the best is to first make sure you've had a good, careful evaluation that has correctly identified the causes or, or likely contributors. And then the best is to um, develop a treatment and management plan that addresses those. Now, I think in reality, often this problem is addressed fairly briskly in the context of primary care, and, um, and men are given a drug like uh, Viagra. The generic name is sildenafil, and there are now some other um, drugs that are in the same class, and that class is called phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. So it's fairly common for those to be tried first. And I think how well they'll work partly depends on, you know, how well they're suited to the underlying cause of um, the sexual dysfunction. Otherwise, there are some sort of second-line devices that people sometimes try. And then it's important to note that lifestyle changes have been shown to help in certain cases. So weight loss and exercise sometimes help and sometimes improving what we call the medical management of cardiovascular risk factors. So that means making sure that the cholesterol is well controlled, that the blood pressure is well controlled, that we reduce kind of inflammation in the blood vessels. Sometimes that helps as well. So what I would recommend for the person asking the question is to, hopefully they've already brought it up to their doctor, but if they're still not satisfied with the results, it's again to do a little research if you can and go in and make sure you've had an adequate evaluation and that you've been offered treatment approaches that seem suited to what is the likely cause 
of the sexual difficulties. And then be sure to also like go back and follow up with the doctor and tell them how it's working. I think patients often assume that doctors will think to follow up with them and say, so how did that go? But um, doctors are often fairly busy and are often juggling multiple medical problems. So it's good to just for yourself plan to follow up with them in a few weeks or a few months at the time when they suggest a management plan, you can actually ask them, like, how soon should I see results? When would be a good time to follow up with you? And be sure to let them know so that they can move on to trying a different approach or the next line in suggested therapy. So I did take a quick look online and found a page from the Cleveland Clinic on male sexual dysfunction that sort of summarizes some common causes and treatment approaches. And so I'll link to that in the show notes. Next question. Yesterday, I was visiting some friends in a nursing home. They informed me that Medicare does not pay for hearing aids, but hearing loss leads to isolation, which leads to depression, which leads to inactivity, heart disease, and a host of other ills. Why is such a simple preventative of so many problems not encouraged and covered? Is anyone trying to change this? So good question. And unfortunately, it's true that traditional Medicare does not pay for hearing aids or for exams to fit the hearing aids. In fact, according to Medicare.gov, they don't even cover hearing exams, although they do cover, quote-unquote, diagnostic hearing and balance exams if your doctor or other healthcare provider orders these tests to see if you need medical treatment, close quote. And so if the order is properly worded, Medicare does sometimes cover audiologic diagnostic services, which is a good start, but what people uh, often ultimately need is a hearing aid that is of good quality and suited to their hearing impairment and properly adjusted and fitted, and Medicare doesn't cover any of that. And that is really, really too bad because hearing problems are very common in older adults. And the questioner is right. They have a huge impact on quality of life and are also associated with deterioration of other health conditions. So why isn't the service covered? Briefly, traditional Medicare was not designed to optimize the long-term health needs of older adults. And so now we're all trying to sort of get the best care possible out of a system that was not designed to do the things that would be best for it to do. And to make changes to traditional Medicare, you have to get Congress and the legislators involved. And as you know, that's, um, that's a challenging proposition for many reasons. And also, even though legislators say they want to improve the health of our older adults and that that's important to them, they're also uh, very concerned about costs. And so anything that sounds like it's going to generate a large new short-term expense and covering hearing aids probably would do that is, uh, is a tough sell these days, which is really, really too bad. As far as I know, to date, there hasn't really been a powerful lobby or social movement demanding they cover hearing aids. But there are a few nonprofit groups and others who advocate for covering these types of services, and I'll link to the advocacy agenda of one of them, which is called the Hearing Loss Association of America. I don't know that they're anywhere near making a breakthrough and getting this widely covered for most people, but it's one of the issues that I would love to see us make headway on. So consider supporting such efforts if you ever get the opportunity to do so. And then otherwise, uh, I did find a nice ARP article on this topic online, which I'll also link to. And they noted that in a few states, Medicaid might cover hearing aids, and that there are also three states that require health insurance to provide some coverage for hearing aids. So that ARP article has um, several good tips on looking into other ways to get some coverage or financial support for hearing aids if you or your older relative need them. Next question, and in some ways this is a little bit related. 
I manage a nonprofit in-home care agency. I'm also on my city's council on aging and run a private aging in place company. I'm forever running into people who failed to plan for later life or caught by surprise when they have a devastating illness or injury and do not have legal documents in place in time. How can we as a society start talking more openly about aging and what our wishes are? Why is it so difficult for people to admit that they themselves are aging? There's massive denial going on. And why is it that we shove our elders aside and try to forget about them? Even if we reauthorize the Older Americans Act, it is so poorly funded that it barely makes a dent in the true needs of our older people. We as a nation are so ill-prepared for the aging boomer generation. I could go on and on. There are many issues that need addressing. So I agree with this person in that these are really important issues, and I find them really interesting to think about and read about, although it's also sobering because she's right. In many ways, we are not well prepared to support a growing older population. So I can't really answer everything she brings up within the scope of this podcast episode, but instead, I want to tell you about a really interesting project and set of reports that came out last year related to this topic, the topic of... Um, of why we aren't better, uh, why there isn't more support for programs that support older adults. And it basically comes down to, to a certain extent, to a question of ageism. And the report that I want to recommend to those of you interested in this topic is called Reframing Aging. And basically, eight of the nation's leading aging-focused organizations, including ARP and some major foundations with an interest in aging, they banded together and they commissioned a nonprofit called the Frameworks Institute to do a big project on aging and ageism. And they basically asked frameworks to study how Americans think about aging and ageism in order to then identify ways to more effectively engage the public in making our country better for older adults. And Frameworks is a really neat nonprofit. They won a MacArthur Genius Grant uh, several years back for their work. And what they do is they work with narratives and stories. And they do research in which they identify what kind of stories we tell ourselves about a given topic. And in this case, they did it about aging and older adults. And then they study the narratives and stories and beliefs that experts and other groups have. And they sort of come up with a report that helps experts bridge the gap more effectively and convey a more uh, constructive story to the public in order to advance their do-gooder agenda. So Frameworks published two reports based on their aging work in 2015, and these reports are freely available on their website. They're really interesting. I'll post a link to them in the show notes. And if you have any frustrations about ageism or any interest in improving the way we view and support older adults, I highly recommend taking a look at these reports. And briefly, I'm going to read you a quote from the second report, kind of illustrating what they found. And, um, and so here's the quote. The biggest problem with the dominant patterns of public understanding identified in frameworks research is the deep assumption that individuals are exclusively responsible for how they age. In addition, while we know from previous research that the public maintains an ideal vision of aging, this ideal is uncontested in most media stories, leaving people with a view of aging that, according to experts, is deeply unrealistic. When the media and advocacy organizations fail to link successful aging to policies that enable older adults to remain active and socially engaged, they actually reinforce the public's highly individualistic understanding of the aging process. The result is that people will understand the likelihood of successful aging to be about lifestyle choices, rather than as affected by supports, larger social structures, or public policies. Moreover, the public is more likely to view poor seniors and those with chronic illnesses 
as having made bad choices and not in relation to social determinants and to our aging supports. So to kind of summarize what was in that, um, frameworks basically found that the public toggles between a view of aging as really idealized, people who are very vigorous and independent until the very end, and that they're that way because they made good choices early in life, or they see aging as really sort of a terrible, horrible time of um, decline. And they don't, one, they don't see a lot of middle ground between the two, although the truth is that most people um, are, many people go through a period somewhere in the middle. And the other thing is that the public doesn't see the extent to which the way we've organized our health services and our social services and our communities can make a difference. And so, for instance, in the previous question, the person was asking about hearing aids. I mean, that's a sort of social and policy issue that we don't cover hearing aids. And that would make a huge difference to people. And people don't necessarily see that there are these um, social and policy factors that affect the experience that people have as they age or the struggles that families have as they age. So in the report, Frameworks made some uh, recommendations as to how we could create aging narratives that would help generate perhaps a little support for the social um, changes and policy changes that we probably need. And I found this work extremely interesting. And so if you have any interest in this topic, again, I would encourage you to take a look at those reports and I'll link to them in the show notes. Next question. I am 65 and my mother is 92. My mother and a few of my siblings have fibromyalgia. I've not been diagnosed, but I do seem to be more sore than my friends. I'm determined to not let pain stop me. My concern is, should I pay attention to the pain? It does keep me awake a lot of the night. However, if I take a leave or Advil, the pain is suppressed enough that I can sleep. Am I endangering my health or making my condition worse by ignoring the pain as much as possible? I can't tolerate a blood pressure cuff on my arm. It's too painful, and my blood pressure readings reflect how painful the procedure has become for me. Is this muscle pain and an indication of old age? Is it something everybody gets as they get older? Should I just ignore it and move on? So there are a couple of interesting questions here. We have a 65-year-old woman who suspects she has fibromyalgia, is often in pain, but finds she can suppress it with Aleve or Advil, is wondering if muscle pain is old age and if it's bad to ignore it, and also can't tolerate a blood pressure cuff on her arm. Now, of course, I can't tell her specifically what to do, but I'm still going to respond to these issues with some um, framing ideas and also some information on generally managing pain and blood pressure in older adults. So briefly, chronic muscle pain is definitely not normal in old age. Now, unfortunately, it is quite common for older adults to be frequently bothered by pain as they get older, but we never recommend people ignore it. And there are a few reasons for this. First, pain is often a sign of something being wrong in the body. And so it's important to uh, have that pain evaluated and identify what's causing the pain. Many underlying problems can be treated. And even if they can't be fully treated or reversed or cured, it's often possible to reduce the person's pain, which can really improve the person's quality of life and ability to participate in activities, whether that's taking care of themselves or of other family members or working or actively participating and volunteering in the community, you name it. Pain interferes with that, and often it is possible to make pain better. But that all starts with a good evaluation. Now, in this case, this person sounds like she's assuming it's fibromyalgia. Um, she could be right. But on the other hand, there are other conditions that can cause muscle pain or the skin to be quite sensitive to pressure. In fact, it can sometimes be a medication side effect. And statin drugs, which are widely prescribed to reduce cholesterol and cardiovascular risk, are well known to cause muscle pain. 
So I would encourage her to not jump to the conclusion that it's fibromyalgia and to get that evaluation. Next, there's the issue of how to manage her pain. So this really depends on what's thought to be the cause of her pain once she's had an evaluation. But everyone who is in their 60s or older should know that over-the-counter painkillers, such as Advil and Aleve, are actually risky for older adults. And people often don't know this. So in fact, these medications are from a class that's called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And they include ibuprofen and naproxen. Those are the generic names of Advil and Aleve. And those are available over the counter, although there are some prescription strength versions as well that are sometimes prescribed to people. Medications in this class are on the American Geriatric Society's beers list of medications that older adults should avoid or use with caution. So the American Geriatric Society maintains a list, which they update every few years, of medications that are known to be especially risky in older adults, and we call that the Beers list or the Beers criteria. And the reason why uh, these types of anti-inflammatory painkillers are risky is because they increase one's risk of internal bleeding, they can diminish kidney function, and they can make high blood pressure worse. And every year, tens of thousands of people, at least, if not more, are hospitalized for bleeding related to these medications. And uh, these medications can cause these things in younger people too, but younger people just have more sort of physical reserve, so they're less likely to suffer side effects. But as one ages, the body becomes more vulnerable to all these problems. So in geriatrics, we recommend against regular use of such anti-inflammatories unless the benefits and risks and alternatives have been carefully considered and discuss with the patient and everybody concludes that the likely benefit is worth the risk. So I don't wanna say that an older person should never ever take these drugs, but especially before taking them on a daily or regular basis, it's important to be mindful of um, the risk and to have considered the alternatives. So I would want this woman in her mid 60s who has frequent pain to know that before she continues to take Advil and leave every night. Regarding the blood pressure, if the squeeze of the cuff is very painful, then yes, that will raise blood pressure and it'll be hard to know if she should be diagnosed with high blood pressure and if she should consider treatment. For people who usually have high blood pressure, especially a systolic number, so that's the top number, over 160, bringing down the blood pressure with medication or other approaches does uh, reduce the risk of stroke and other cardiovascular problems. And that's important to consider in people who are age 60s or 70s or even older. For now, we have limited options for people who can't tolerate the squeeze of an arm cuff. There are blood pressure monitors that will squeeze your wrist, and that may or may not be more tolerable for this person. With a wrist monitor, you have to be very careful about your arm position relative to your heart, or you'll get incorrect readings. And then there's actually a fancy new gizmo called Scanadu Scout that in the media has been referred to as a tricorder, kind of like this little device they had in Star Trek. But uh, this is a little device that's based on um, a new method of measuring blood pressure, and it claims to measure blood pressure without squeezing any part of your body. You just hold it to your forehead. I was pretty skeptical that this could work when I first heard about it a few years ago, but uh, I've actually talked to one of the doctors involved in it who seems very sensible, and the device is in clinical trials right now. So if this new technology gets confirmed as a valid way to measure blood pressure in older adults, that's going to be really helpful because although most uh, older adults don't have fibromyalgia, many older adults mind the squeeze of the monitor, especially if they have dementia. So I'm looking forward to a better way to measure blood pressure. So in summary, I would encourage this person to seek medical help for her pain and possible fibromyalgia because frequent muscle pain as you get older is not normal and should be investigated. Next question. 
What does conservative treatment for chronic kidney disease involve? My husband is 89 and has stage 4, almost stage 5. He may be advised to have dialysis in the near future. From what I've read, at his age, dialysis does not extend life any more than conservative treatment. I've also read that many nephrologists do not know how to provide conservative treatment and that palliative care is difficult for that population. What are your thoughts and recommendations? So this is a question about managing very advanced kidney disease in an older adult, and in this case, in uh, a man who's 89. So as you may know, the kidneys filter the blood to remove certain substances, and they also serve a crucial role in adjusting our electrolytes in our blood, which is really important for proper function of all the organs. It's fairly common for older adults to have at least mild kidney dysfunction, which means their kidneys filter less effectively and may also be more prone to damage um, from over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medications, for instance, or other stressors. Now, kidney function is classified by stages, with stage one being normal with good function and then stage five being really minimal function. So stage four kidney disease is pretty advanced, and once people get to stage five, which means their kidneys have lost almost all their function and are filtering the blood very slowly and ineffectively, the kidney doctors generally recommend dialysis, and dialysis is a special procedure that filters the blood in the kidneys stead. As you may know, being on dialysis is not easy. In this country, you usually need to go to a dialysis center three times a week. You have to have a special vein created in your arm. People often feel exhausted by the procedure, and it puts them at risk for infections and other complications. And so for these reasons, and also because people with end-stage kidney disease are often otherwise quite chronically ill, studies find that older adults on dialysis are fairly likely to die within a few years. So what happens if you're at stage five and you don't get dialysis? So kidney disease usually progresses very slowly. So especially if your medical care is otherwise optimized to compensate for the very weak kidney function, people are often able to live for a year or more. And such optimized medical care that doesn't include dialysis is called conservative management of end-stage kidney disease. Now, when I looked at the research, what studies have found is that in many older adults, dialysis does actually extend life, probably by one to two years, but you're spending those years on dialysis and often experiencing complications. And in several of the studies um, for older adults who opted to not go on dialysis, about half of them lived a year or more. So it's not, it's not an immediate death sentence to decline dialysis. Also bear in mind that deciding to not go on dialysis is not the same as being on dialysis and deciding to stop. For those people, their body has adjusted to being on dialysis and when they stop, they tend to die within, within days to a few weeks. But for this question, we're, we're talking about deciding to not start dialysis in the first place and going with the conservative treatment approach. And the person was asking, what's involved. In terms of what's involved, it should be a three-pronged approach. One is optimal medical management of the advanced kidney disease, which means adjusting medications to minimize the stress on the kidneys and also to compensate for the effects of kidney dysfunction on the body. So often this involves medications that adjust the electrolytes somewhat. And in many ways, this is similar to the treatment of kidney patients who are stage four. Another aspect of conservative management is that even uh, despite the best medications and treatments to compensate for the kidney disease, people will eventually start to experience some symptoms related to their failing kidneys. 
And so part of conservative management is to treat those symptoms and try to minimize the impact. And those symptoms include problems um, like fatigue or extra fluid in the legs or sometimes in the lungs, which can cause shortness of breath. Sometimes people have pain. Sometimes they have itching. And so all of those um, symptoms of advanced kidney disease should be assessed and managed when you're doing conservative management of people with very advanced kidney disease like this. And then the last prong is advanced planning, which means planning ahead for the time when symptoms will get worse or when there'll be a sudden emergency. Uh, when your kidneys don't work well, your potassium goes up and that can cause a sudden cardiac arrest. And so it's important for the patient and family to have talked about what would the patient want done if they're found with, uh, with an arrest? And, you know, do you want to complete paperwork or pre-hospital do not resuscitate and to sort of go through that, that thought process. So that's basically conservative treatment. Um, the medications and medical plan to, uh, optimize the kidney function and compensate for the effects of kidney dysfunction, the treatment of difficult symptoms, and then the planning ahead for future decline and emergencies. Do most nephrologists know how to provide this? This is hard to say. It has, as the, as the number of older people with end-stage kidney disease has been growing because we have more older adults in general and people are living longer, um, it's become a more common issue to come up. And I think the kidney doctors are, uh, they've actually published some practice guidelines about this and it's becoming more common for them to not assume that older adults should switch to dialysis and to learn to um, counsel patients about this option. The person asking the question also brought up the question of palliative care. And this means medical care that is explicitly focused on relieving uncomfortable symptoms and other forms of suffering, including the emotional suffering of the patient and family. And it's its own medical specialty, so some doctors are board certified in palliative care, but it's also a knowledge base and approach so in principle, you shouldn't have to see a specialist in order to have your symptoms uh, attended to. And so as it becomes more common for older adults to decide to potentially forego dialysis, we would expect that the kidney doctors would become uh, more familiar with how to manage the uncomfortable symptoms that can come up for people with advanced kidney disease who are not on dialysis. So that's the idea, and that's where we're going. But I, I think at this time, most kidney specialists are not yet very comfortable, uh, are not necessarily going to be comfortable managing the symptoms of older adults who choose to forego dialysis. So it's true that palliative care can be challenging if you pursue conservative management, um, mainly because it can be hard to access clinicians with experience in palliative care unless you're enrolled in hospice. And initially, when people become stage five, they're not necessarily eligible for hospice because they don't, it's not necessarily likely that they'll die within six months. Now, people often confuse palliative care and hospice. Hospice is a covered package of services that enables people to receive a lot of supportive services and symptom management services um, in their home. And to be eligible for Medicare's hospice services, the doctor has to say that you're likely to die within six months. Now, if you develop stage five kidney disease and don't get dialysis, uh, eventually you'll, you'll develop symptoms or signs that the kidney disease has progressed to the point where you do become eligible for that six-month prognosis. But until then, it can be hard to get palliative care services. And so what this person could do if she and her husband decide to pursue that approach if to ask around and find out what's available near them and given their insurance. Many hospitals provide inpatient palliative care services, 
It's not yet as common for outpatient palliative care services to be available, but that's growing. Some uh, large medical groups also have programs called advanced illness management, which provides special supportive services for people who have advanced illness but may not want hospice or may not yet be eligible. So that would be another option for them. In terms of online resources on the conservative management of stage 5 kidney disease, I looked online and I was surprised that there's actually not much available to the general public. But there is an up-to-date chapter on it, um, and also on palliative care for advanced kidney disease, so I'll link to those in the show notes. But unfortunately, to read the full article, the person would have to purchase a subscription for a week or a month. Okay, now for the last question for this episode. How do you know what is normal aging in the area of memory loss? So it is normal for the brain to change with aging, and although some mental functions can get better with aging, processing speed and some other abilities do decline somewhat as people get older. And that's in people who are normal, meaning they don't have a neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, which are disorders which cause a certain type of deterioration in the brain, which can be seen on autopsy. And now they have other biochemical methods of identifying some of those changes sometimes. This phenomenon of the brain changing and the brain's abilities changing as people get older is called cognitive aging. And in 2015, the Institute of Medicine released uh, what was really a landmark report on the subject, summarizing what we know so far about kind of aging. This is in some ways a newer concept for the medical field, which historically was more focused on specific diseases. And only now is starting to really dig into learning about uh, aging and the aging process and the way aging in of itself changes the body and mind. And of course, there's this sort of like fuzzy boundary too between what's aging and what's, um, you know, actual disease or disorder, which the researchers are, are trying to work out as well. So it's all a fascinating topic. And if you want to learn more about cognitive aging, I'll post a link in the show notes to the Institute of Medicine page on the kind of aging report. You can actually read the whole report online for free, but uh, it's really long and technical. And what's nice about the Institute of Medicine reports is that they usually publish a shorter summary, which is available as a link to the PDF on the page. And so that's a good place to start just to get the key points of the report. And then they've also, in this case, published an action guide for individuals and families, and that summarizes what they recommend to preserve one's brain health as one ages. In terms of how memory changes as one gets older, it varies a a little among different people, but experts who study the brain have identified several different types of memory, and many of them, although not all, do get worse over time as people get older. And that's usually in a linear fashion, meaning that everything is slowly declining in a steady fashion, as opposed to staying steady for most of your life and then suddenly taking a dive. Now, that's not to say that we haven't all observed, or at least many of us have observed, uh, people whose memory suddenly seems to get worse quickly. But it's just that when that happens, that's not normal aging. That is something else like delirium or a brain injury from a stroke or even uh, neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's um, speeding up or becoming apparent. So to go back to the question, when people ask about normal memory loss, uh, what they're often wondering is what's abnormal and what might be a sign of Alzheimer's or another significant underlying problem with the brain. And to address that, the Alzheimer's Association has this really nice page on their website illustrating 10 early signs of Alzheimer's. And what I really like about it is that for each sign, they give a counterexample of what would be normal aging versus the sign of um, something more significant. So for instance, one of their signs is memory loss that interferes with daily life. But the counterexample to that is that occasionally forgetting names and appointments and then remembering them later is normal. 
So um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and that's a nice way to to get several specific examples of what would be normal aging versus the sign of a problem. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in this episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.